Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world, all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are The Dental Amigos. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Montgomery. I'm joined, as always, by the head nacho himself, Dr. Paul Goodman. Great to be talking, Rob. It's good to see you, Paul, and welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Dental Amigos. Uh, here we are in our season of buying a dental practice, so uh, dissecting all the various issues and aspects of uh, buying a Just buying the a practice. biggest decision of your career. Yep. And for most people, as you like to say, these are one transactions. Yeah. And uh, which means that you get to do this once and uh, you've got to get it yeah. right. I was just saying today, Rob, you know, buying the right practice, awesome. Buying the wrong one, an- annoying. You got to make the right decision with the right people. Right. And you also like to say, we're just quoting each other. Yeah, this is yeah. great. <laughs> you know, you can't just give a practice back. Right. You can't return it. Right. Uh, it's not like uh, Zappos or right. uh, any of our other favorite uh, retailers online that you just, you know, like I it. I think what's important is to jump for a second is because when you return something, you know, it's kind of the same product for someone else that's good. But if you try to return a practice too soon, people are like, what's wrong with it? Right? Yeah. So it's that's it's just a it's a living, breathing thing. So for our listeners, just, you know, you buy a million dollar practice, you try to return it, you're not getting a million dollars for that practice. No, return, so. not even close. So today we're going to talk about just negotiating the agreements, like some you know, kind of big picture and topics that you would see in a typical practice purchase agreement. I think it's it's a, it's a great topic because you've said there's like also negotiations. I, maybe I'm dating myself. It's not supposed to look like American gladiators between the attorneys, right, Rob? With those right. big right. big things you hit people with. It's supposed to be uh, agreements that are good for both sides, right? That's right. Well, especially in a a dentist to dentist transition, yeah. yes. I and mean, we've talked about in other episodes and other seasons. You know, the DSO deals are very different. They're yeah. not the quote unquote win wins. Right. But uh, we still call dentist to dentist deals transitions yeah. for a reason because I think, as you said, it's you're trying to make this this work to transition the goodwill. And there's, you know, it's usually a, a somewhat happy, positive, collaborative process. Again, yeah. unlike the DSO deals that for we sure. say. Uh, but we, this is one of the reasons why we like working with dentists that are selling to dentists or dentists that are buying from a, from another dentist. So um, we're not going to get into great detail with these topics, but really just kind of touch yeah. on them, give people some things to think about. So one of the things, obviously, that a asset purchase agreement would have, which you know, typically if you're buying a practice, it's going to be a purchase of the assets, yeah. not a stock purchase where you're also buying the liability. So in an asset purchase, you're only buying the good, the assets in the practice. And so one of the things obviously you're going to see in there is the purchase price, uh, obviously. And with the purchase price and kind of in the same or close by section in the agreement is going to be how that purchase price is allocated. And so what that means is what portion of the purchase price is going to be allocated towards the equipment and the fixtures in the practice? What purchase, which uh, aspect of the purchase price will be allocated towards the goodwill? Because each of these buckets, so to speak, get different tax treatment. So right. goodwill gets taxed 
at a capital gains tax rate. Uh, equipment and fixtures uh, typically are taxed at the ordinary income rate, and so are supplies. So from what this means is from the seller side, they want as much as possible allocated towards goodwill and those types of items because uh, they only have to pay uh, taxes at the capital gains tax rate, which is lower than ordinary income. From a buyer standpoint, uh, those items get depreciated over a longer period of time. So the buyer wants to try to allocate as much as possible to items that are equipment, fixtures, things like that, and supplies that can be depreciated over a seven, five, or one year yeah. period. So the you could correct me if I'm wrong, and I know we don't have our accounting team on the side, but I've always been under the understanding, Rob, because it's this is always a sometimes a bit of a contentious thing when I'm a broker between two sides saying I want 99% goodwill, right? right. I understand, which is crazy, Doctor right? Seller, why you want nine? Right. For the buyer, is there a, a huge difference as to what the depreciation is? Kind of a tax thing, but mm -hmm. at the end, it's the same math, pretty much, right? Yeah, it's a timing thing, right? Yeah, so there is benefit. Obviously, you want to be able to write off as much as possible as quickly as possible. That's a timing thing. From the seller standpoint, it's a tax liability yeah. issue. You know, it's the difference between maybe forty percent tax rate yeah. or fifteen percent tax rate. So it it does impact the seller. More. I do say that, you know, we're looking at this from the buyer perspective. In my broker deals, and I don't, and I always say, talk to your accountants and attorneys, but you can use it to be a good guy or person to sort of say, hey, I can accept a higher goodwill that's not out of bounds. And would you do X, Y, or Z for me? I mean, I don't know sure. if I'm off base with that, but that's, I've found as a negotiating mm -hmm. positive thing where you can kind of you know, uh, that what tit for tat people call, right? Mm -hmm. You know? So. Yeah, it's, it, well, it's, it would be an easy trade-off yeah. for sure. Uh, and look, you know, typically, <laughs> barring something that's really absurd, like your request, like the 99%, yeah. an allocation shouldn't kill the deal. Right. Um, and if it does, there's probably bigger problems, bigger problems yeah. exactly. Uh, another thing that you would expect to see and needs to be dealt with is how are the accounts receivable going to be handled? Um, it's especially important in a PPO-based practice where there is a lot of money that's out on the street, as opposed to a fee-for-service yeah. practice where people may be paying for services at the time uh, that they're rendered. So with that, uh, there's a variety of different ways that you can capture yeah. the accounts receivable. In some cases, the seller may retain their right to collect the accounts receivable. Yeah, usually not the greatest idea, yeah. you know, from a buyer standpoint, which that's what this episode, this season rather, yeah. this episode in the season is about. Uh, you don't want the patients to still have that ongoing dialogue or relationship with the previous owner. It's also a little confusing if they're getting two different invoices, one from and the also, old guy. I mean, I, I've dealt with this before, and I've you know I've gotten older and more more annoyed. And the more times you're annoyed, the wiser you get, Rob. That's my quote. So I've gotten older and wiser. <laughs> like and that. one of our transitions where we did not buy the accounts receivable, we weren't using you guys at that time. I don't know. We were using just sort of a, a generic attorney. Well, that's not a nice word for it. A, a general attorney, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I like that. To highlight that, and it was really um, a morale destroyer to deal with this because mm -hmm. here's what maybe you don't see, Rob, is uh, Mrs. Smith comes in one month after the closing, and they have an $800 bill with the accounts receivable with the previous seller, right. and now they have an $800 mm -hmm. bill with us, 
and now they want to pay 400 and now you're saying okay 200 over here 200 over there there's one yeah. credit card machine this really is a devil details making totally. you cry inside thing mm -hmm. i also will share if this time that you know there's a lot of value to getting the accounts receivable as low as possible prior to closing and there are resources out there in the dental community that will chase down your accounts receivable for you. And mm -hmm. I just think the lower that number, the better for everybody involved. Yeah. I mean, because the, the other option is that the buyer can collect it for the seller, which is better than the first uh, yeah. first option we threw out. Uh, but it's work, you know, and so you're collecting somebody else's money. Yes, yeah, so there's usually a percentage that comes off yeah, the top there should of some be. sort of so administration fee. Mm -hmm, exactly. But even with that, you know, it's still it's probably not, whatever you're going to collect, it's not going to be worth what the aggravation was. Also, Robert, like I would say to people, why didn't these people pay you? You know them, right? So right. it's like, these are the people you know, they didn't pay you. You have the 60 to 90 days out there. You know, I look at zero to 30, you know, mm -hmm. 30 to 60. I know you know this world too, 60 to 90, 90 mm -hmm. plus. And if someone hasn't paid you in three months, why? There's a problem. And when's the day they're going to show up and say, here's my credit card for that right. crown I never paid for? Yeah, well, I mean, sometimes we're not talking about patients either. I mean, we could be talking about insurance companies yeah. reimbursing here. And then really the other option is to purchase the accounts receivable, which may be the easiest, cleanest way, because now all the money that comes in is yours. You don't have to worry about yeah. which dollars are going to the seller, which dollars are being retained by the buyer. And when that happens, usually there's a formula, to right. your point, that tracks the age of those receivables. So for example, it may be 85% of zero to 30 days of you know, 75%, yeah. 30 to 60, 50%, 60 to 90. And everything over 90 comes, if they say in South Philadelphia, Paul, comes with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. you know, but, but you still want to get all of the accounts receivable. There are nuances to, to this, you know, different wrinkles and different ways to do this, but they're, they're generally like the three options. And I think we'll probably say them in uh, ascending order yeah. in, in terms of uh, what makes your life easiest. And I also think, you know, just from the buyers, as we add value to this, and I've learned this over my, you know, decades of ownership, you know, how well a seller can talk about their accounts receivable is reflective of the health of their practice, right? If you ask Jeff and I to tell you about accounts receivable, we'd have Kate here, we'd say zero to 30 is this, this is insurance. We'd have reasons. There's this over 90 days. We had an issue with this one patient. Mm -hmm. But when you kind of say a seller accounts receivable, why hasn't it been collected? They say, what's that? It sometimes can be reflective of some yes. collection collection protocol issues that are happening in the practice. Yeah. Well, if you don't know what it is, then there's probably right. a problem with yeah. it, right? That's one, as you, to your point, you really have to keep an eye on as a, as a sure. practice owner. Next thing that you would expect to see uh, dealt with in the document would be how to deal with patient credits. And that kind of goes along with this AR yeah. discussion where Ms. Jones, as you said, comes a month after closing and says, well, what about that $150 that I had the credit right. for? And the last thing you want to say is, oh, yeah, well, that's the seller. Let me right. tell you how to get in touch with them. Because, you know, she doesn't care. She's going to the dental office and right. thinks it's the same thing. You want it to be a seamless transition. Uh, you don't want to send her on some goose chase. Right. I'm not going to say a wild goose chase, but a goose chase of sorts to try to track down her money with somebody. Um, so that really should be dealt with where those people uh, at or prior to the closing, where there's a credit against the purchase price right. or that's paid out of the closing proceeds so that the the buyer now controls that basically. And when Miss Jones comes in, they've got the $150 to give to Miss right. Jones or to apply it to her, yeah. her future treatment. That's a good point. Uh, 
similar to that work in progress this is a little less clear as yeah. far as how to do it because it really needs to be done on a case by case basis but basically what you need to address how the work that's in in transition or in progress is going to be dealt with is it going to be finished by the seller will it be right. finished by the seller after the closing at no cost really needs to be itemized broken out ortho is a whole nother thing yeah. you know how are you going to deal with ortho especially if you've been paid the lion's share right. of that treatment there's still ongoing responsibility for that um but uh, so I, I can't tell you the best way to do it other than it needs to be dealt with and addressed. I, mean, I can share this and maybe you'll have some feedback, you know, as I've been in this world and learned from it and even just thinking of my own practice or was at, at yesterday, there seems to be some value. I know it's not always possible for there to be like, today's the day the seller's here to deal with stuff after closing. And I could see that like, even with my own patient, so I know, mm-hmm. and I sold my practice tomorrow and you were the buyer, say, on Tuesday, every second Tuesday, Dr. Paul Goodman's here, and you just put stuff he has to deal with in the schedule. Mm-hmm. And you know, I see value in some wrap up because these mm-hmm. are full contact arts and craft projects that we're doing with dentistry. Yes, and it's just impossible to have this day where, like today, they're all over, right? Mm-hmm. So it probably doesn't want to extend for a long period of time. But I now see that there would be some value to the seller still having some clinical presence that you could put in their schedule and say, "Oh, you don't like your crown that they did six months ago." Dr. Paul comes this day. Yeah, no, it's a great suggestion. And I think some version of that is, is probably a good thing to do yeah. in most cases. Uh, the other things that we're going to talk about in an agreement, and this is really, some of this is an agreement issue. And then some of it is just really like a deal management administration issue and there are liens and liabilities. So the asset purchase agreement should say, for the most part, that the practice is being sold and the assets have no liens and there are no liabilities that go with them. There may be some specific things that are assumed, but generally speaking, there shouldn't be any large ticket items. So that's going to be in the agreement. That also becomes an administrative thing that that, uh, you want to make sure as the buyer that those things are being paid and satisfied. Um, Doing lien searches to turn up whether or not there are loans, PPP, wasn't a lienable right. item, but the idle loans were. Other bank loans are lienable because if you buy an asset that has a lien on it from somebody else, then that person retains, that creditor retains that lien. So it's yeah. just like buying a house that has a mortgage on it. You don't you don't want that. You want right. it to be free and clear. And uh, so don't rely on the seller necessarily to do that because even though they're going to indemnify you right. in the agreement, which means that they're going to stand behind any problems, you'd rather that it be taken care of than to have a ticket to a lawsuit to sue right. them to take care of it, right? So um, definitely something that, again, will be in the agreement, but it also becomes sort of part of the project to address those things. And this is where I just think it's just our constant reinforcement of why it's important to work with people who do this daily and are professionals who know about these things and, you know, it's just a, it's a, um, dentists will spend more on people telling them how to go through Disney World than they will on their practice <laughs> transition. Yeah. And that sounds like a joke, but it's 100% yeah. true. Yeah. You know? Why is this person ripping me off? I go, they're not ripping you off. They're preventing you from, you know, it's, it's, it, I think one thing I can share is just when you only do things once and you've never done it before, and then they say, today's the day you got to find out who you have to hire to do all this stuff. It just sometimes totally blows the mind of minds of these dentists 
and yeah. doing it, but it's necessary mm -hmm. because it's the whole ounce of prevention, pound of cure, don't cry inside when you learn later that this happened. And this has happened to me through transitions. Mm -hmm. So learn from people's mistakes and just get people who do this every day to help you. Yeah, and I think that that really kind of brings up a, a slightly different topic, but you know that I think people sometimes come to us with the expectation that, well, how much is it gonna cost for you to do the agreement? Like the actual document, well, that's like, I wouldn't say it's a small part of the process, but it is it's it is just one aspect yeah. of the process. The other thing is to deal with all this other stuff. Like you can print right. out an agreement online and maybe it's a great agreement, but you have to know what to do with it, right? right you know, exactly. like, like I can give you the Eagles playbook, Paul, <laughs> right, yeah. and you know, that will, there's nothing you're going to be able to do with right. that, right? Like yes. I've got the plays, but like you don't know how to execute that stuff, you know? And so it's not just the actual written document, it's all the other I'm gonna stuff do a, that's to uh, be done. A sketch for our community, Rob. I'm going to bring in a model of teeth and I'm going to bring in how you put a filling in. I'm going to give you all the instructions and say, go do it, Rob. Here's right. the agreement for no bonding. Way. And then yeah. I'm going to film it and say, see, this is what happens when a lawyer tries to put in a filling. Yeah. And this is what's going to happen when you, you try to do your dental office transition on your own. Mm -hmm. And you can really actually fix the filling a lot easier than the biggest decision of your career. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's yeah, a great analogy. Uh, other things that you could expect to see is transition assistance language. Uh, you know what the seller is going to agree to do to help you. This is one of those areas that's just kind of a little wishy-washy. Yeah. You know, and and it's hard to specify and lay out specifics. Sometimes we do, but typically we don't see that. You know, and really it's a, it's a good faith agreement to yeah. stick around or to be available and. I think most of, I shouldn't say most, the overwhelming majority of the time, we see that sellers are cooperative yeah. like this. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's built into most of the time, you know, they want to, their patients to be taken care of. They, you know, I think most of the time, in our my resistance, the, the seller has wanted us to do well and mm -hmm. kind of it's worked out well. It's just, that's kind of how it goes back to this entire season of make sure you're walking this down the right path to begin with, mm -hmm. because if step one doesn't go right with the LOI part of it, it's going to have a difficult seller at this part too. Yeah. You know, so. oh, and that's exactly, it's a great point, Paul. You know, and, and so if you have issues with the seller right. before the closing, get ready to have issues with the seller after the closing, yeah. right? So, uh, and and with all this stuff, anything that you're going to see in a, in a legal document, that like we as lawyers can't make people do things just because we put an obligation right. on paper, right? So all this stuff can be written up, but ultimately you have to trust the other side and have a good feeling that they're going to right. to do the right thing and act in good faith. I want to remind you of one of my, your favorite quotes as a quote show. You, you've, and you've said this to me many times. I've, I've used, said in lectures, try to give you credit every time that you've dealt with people who are unreasonable and you've never seen them get more reasonable as things no, have gone on. Right. So, I mean, it's like totally. if, you're, if you're playing golf with your friends and they bring a stranger and he's already complaining that the pro shop doesn't have the balls he wants, well, yeah. I just want you to know the seventh hole, it's not going to get easier. Right? <laughs> That's you know, good. They ain't going like to like the hot dog cart then, right? So yeah. oh, I think for it's, sure. it's key to, and I really think when people get emotional, Rob, is they, they just ignore red flags mm -hmm. and they just get, they, they're emotionally invested in something without looking at it yeah. objectively. So I think, you know, when That's you're at this point. point where you're talking about, and I'll say as a dentist, these are things, there's just a lot of subjectivity, you know, from 
uh, work in progress to things like that. There's just, you know, the transition assistance. What does that look like? You're going to be mm -hmm. a Walmart greeter saying, hi, I'm still here. Right. You're going to be checking hygiene, right. you know, so it, it, some of it is a, there's a huge trust factor in it. Well, and that's a good point too. Like, you know, what are they going to do? And I think sometimes you know, people are buying practices and you want that security blanket. Like I want the seller around for three months. Yeah. Okay. What are they going to do? They're not doing any clinical dentistry. No, they're going to come to the office every day and stand there and show me what to do. <laughs> yeah. Like that's not a good idea. Yeah. You know? Right. Uh, it's not going to be good for the patients. It's not going to be good for the staff. It's like, what's Dr. Smith doing over there in the in corner? Doing this, the biggest challenge is the team part because mm -hmm. uh, I was home with my four-year-old who's very difficult and she was uh, screaming that she wanted her mom. And I said, too bad. She's in Mexico. I'm all you got. Right. And we had to figure it out together. Uh-huh. But if she was there, and, and you were a great parenting duo with this stuff, you know, and so if you think of the the practice or the team, they just get mixed messages if the person's just standing around doing nothing who used to run the place. Right. And I just really, I think it's a point I hadn't thought of until this moment that you just want to make sure that what that transition assistant looks reasonable, practical, and doesn't make things extra weird. Right, yeah. Like, oh, and the seller's in the back sitting there on Facebook. Yeah, right. We can get them if we need them. That's you not know? good, right? Yeah. And, and why do you want to, like, you know, essentially handcuff this person to the practice? Like, they're they're miserable, too. Like, it's just not, it's not good I for would, anybody. I will share that in a positive way, and thinking about this more, talking about this idea, is if there was an opportunity for the seller to still do something related to some hygiene exams in a practice that maybe had a high patient relationship way and say, hey, mm -hmm. it's kind of mm -hmm. like my swan song. I remember when like Michael Jordan would do his, Dr. J, they're sort of the retirement party. They right. bring out a rocking chair. There yeah. could be something that's put together that looks like it makes sense, is reasonable, and really transfers the trust, but you just have to really game plan that well. Yeah, right. And every and every deal is different, yeah. right? Case by case basis. It depends on the size of the practice, the nature of the practice. Yeah. Is it fee for service? Is it PPO? How you know is the team able to help right. with this transition? You know how integral is the seller? Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of variables for sure. that. Um, and okay, so another issue that you would expect to see an important one: uh, restrictive covenants. So uh, you want to make sure as a buyer that the seller can't go across the street next week and open up a dental practice. Um, so with this, you want to make sure that they're restrict it in several ways, covenant not to compete so yeah. that they can't practice within a certain area of this location for a certain period of time. Uh, Non-solicitation covenants yeah. where they can't solicit patients, staff, or referral sources. Because keep in mind, the overwhelming majority of the value in the dental practice is goodwill. And the only way that you can preserve and transition that goodwill is if you don't have to compete with the person right. that used to hold that goodwill. So the restrictive covenant is what uh, is what I want does to ask that. you about because we need like sound effects for like breaking news or something. Like breaking news because I do not to go sideways, but say so. I've seen a lot of articles posted about non competes mm -hmm. not being a thing, and I but this wouldn't really apply here. Employment agreements there still would be restrictive covenants in practice transitions. Yes. Am I thinking of yeah. this right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so there are and and. Uh, my colleague and I, uh, Josh Salser, uh, and our firm just did a uh, webinar, which uh, we we're going to put out. I think it's the article that, oh, yeah. that Josh wrote is up on our website now, but we'll, we'll put out a, uh, a short audio about that recent FTC proposed rule that would ban covenants not to compete in employment agreements. So important distinction in employment agreements. Right. So 
generally even what's being proposed in that rule, which isn't final yet, remains to be seen whether or not it's going to stand withstand yeah. all the, the legal challenges against it. But uh, generally speaking, that would not apply to practice transitions. Yeah. Um, there are certain states that have banned Restri- uh, covenants not to compete already. Yeah. Uh, but again, that's in the employment context. Uh, they have carve outs of some sort for practice transitions. Yeah. Uh, again. And something to note, even in the states where there are uh, covenants not to compete and where they're permitted, generally speaking, you're going to see harsher covenants not to compete in an asset purchase agreement than you would see right. in an associate agreement. Okay, so the sort of the reasonableness of that is looked at uh, under a different microscope between those two. Because with a a covenant not to compete that's ancillary to the sale or purchase of a practice, after you've paid somebody a million dollars, you get the right to tell them that for five years and 20 miles, don't go anywhere near this. Um, But it's a different calculus if it's, quote unquote, merely an employment agreement yeah, for an associate. Gotcha. So what? don't think that because you gave your associate a two-year, three-mile non-compete, that that's reasonable for you to, to impute that same uh, yeah. covenant if you're buying a practice from somebody. You're going to want something a lot more robust. Cool. Uh, and so as we talk about employment agreements, that's another thing that, depending on the nature of the deal and the size of the practice, you might be negotiating the terms of the seller's post-closing employment agreement. So if the practice is large enough to support two dentists, they may stay on for a year or more. They may stay on full-time, part-time, but they are going to get a full-blown associate agreement as an employee as part of the deal. And so that's a document that would be negotiated prior to the closing where we're going to say at the closing, you're going to give me the money, I'm going to give you a bill of sale, and we're going to enter into an employment agreement where I agree to be an associate dentist being paid 35% of net collections, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and I I think one of the things I'll share in a a positive way is that we did a transition with someone on a three-year employment agreement, and they stayed for five years because they liked it, you know? Mm -hmm. But at the end of three years, we can kind of both turn the key to end it, you know? So mm-hmm. I think that, and that to me was a really good way. And I don't recommend three years all the time. That was a different type of merger fold in than it was just a total, you know, buyout. Right. But uh, it could be for dentists who are listening, an opportunity to kind of keep contributing in a way that makes sense to both mm-hmm. parties and seeing how it goes. You know, these are, I have a big thing, test, not guess. I mean, if you've owned your own practice for 30 years, Rob, and someone buys it, your own business, and then you're going to work inside of that business with someone else. You don't necessarily want to handcuff yourself for too long. Mm-hmm. If it goes well, keep it going. And if right. it doesn't, just part ways. That's a really key thing to say. And and I think it's important for people to, to hear this, that the don't commit yourself to you know, being obligated to provide right. full-time employment for a certain period of time yeah. as the buyer. You know, be careful about guarantees in that regard, because ultimately you're buying this practice, you have to make enough money to pay off the bank, right? Right, And you have to be careful about making promises with a seller to be able to continue to be a dentist in that practice. So, you know, example, easy example here, if there is one dentist in this practice, the seller, and they're a full-time dentist, you can't hire them after the closing as the full-time dentist in that practice and expect to also be the full-time dentist in that practice. That's a problem. And if you make guarantees and promises to that person, then you're not going to be able to deliver on that or you're not going to be able to pay the bill. For full context, for for people learning, at the time we did this, we had multiple dentists, multiple locations. Back to this this episode, 
if a one dentist practice is a one dentist practice, there's no magic wand that turns into a two dentist practice. There might be opportunities to contribute in a small way that mm -hmm. makes sense, like come yeah. off the bench, right? Sure, but, absolutely. You know, it's just for buyers to understand. Going on vacation, yeah. right? Or we got busier, right. you know, we added another day and now guess what? Yeah. We've got more demand and, you know, it's awesome. And who is your best associate in that context? Oftentimes yeah. it's the person that sold the practice sure. if they if it all works out, but Good case point. by case basis. But do be careful about about committing to to do something yeah. and being giving guarantees. And then the last thing that we'll touch on now, because our next episode we'll we'll talk about this in greater detail, is the real estate. So uh, if the seller owns the real estate, you may be entering into a lease with them as their tenant. Yeah. You may be purchasing the real estate from them at the closing. Again, both of those things yeah. need to happen at the closing. You can't buy the practice and not have some sort of legal possessory right to, to operate the business there. Uh, or you could also possibly have a third party landlord. So dealing with the consent to assign the lease or extend yeah. the lease is something that would need to be provided for in the document. And that's another thing that becomes sort of a deal administrative management thing, right. which is managing the, the, the third party landlord, getting those yeah. consents and, and, and making sure that that after the practice has been purchased, that you have the ability to continue to do business yeah. there. Because like Rob Montgomery says, without a without a practice, it's just dental. You need both sides. That'll be our okay, next can I, episode. Without an, without without a <laughs> without an office, you can't have a dental office. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember right. it yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's why leases matter. That's right. They do. It's it's the sexiest topic, I think. Paul. <laughs> uh, so you know, lots of other things you're going to see in agreements too. But these are really some of the main things that I think people can expect to see. Some of these things get dealt with in an LOI. Some of them kind of get pun it until you get to the actual documents. And as with everything, every deal is different and you, know, you have to do this stuff on a case-by-case -case basis, but you now kind of like you know, some rough outline of some of the topics that you would expect to say. Awesome. Uh, so everyone, thanks uh, for listening as always. And if you like the podcast, please go on your favorite podcast app and leave us a great review. And until the next time, thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with The Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on thedentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group, helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.